Now, I prepared a PowerPoint that was sent via the ether, but has disappeared. And sometimes emails do that, as you know. So I need to tell you where we're going, and then I need to go there with you or take you with me. And then, depending on the clock, we need to try and summarize and say where we've been. There are four chapters, crucial chapters, in the, towards the end of 1 Kings that tell the most dramatic story of a person who is so important that to think that there are only four chapters about him is remarkable. Because you remember, he, along with Moses, met with Jesus on Mount Tabor, where I was standing six months ago, and quite literally was reduced to tears. So we're talking about Elijah this morning. And as, as I say, four or five chapters. And uh, if we had time, we'd go through all of this. His family, his faith, his food, his future, his frailty, and his fruit. Sorry about that. Not seriously sorry. Because it does help us to remember. But we'll be looking, well, I'll be cherry-picking from there. That's where we're going to go. Let's start in the Word of God. Let me read some verses from two or three passages, and then we'll go straight into the material that's before us this morning. Now, Elisha, Elijah, rather, the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead, said to that wicked man there, Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve... There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. James chapter 5 says this. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like you. 2 Corinthians 12. That incredible chapter when Paul had been beseeching God to answer a prayer, and as I shall say later, Sometimes it's a good thing that God doesn't answer the prayers that we actually pray. Any amens there? Sometimes it's good that God doesn't answer the prayers we pray. Well, he was praying because he had a problem. Maybe it was with his sight. Maybe he was subject to ambient uh, malaria. We don't know. But right at the end, God gives him an understanding uh, in terms of what was going on. And he talks about the fact that his grace is made perfect in weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. David is the pinnacle of the Old Testament history in terms of the kings. And you know that in all sorts of ways. It's alluded to, it's said very specifically and very clearly. He passed 
the throne to Solomon, who was supposed to be wise. Now, if Solomon is wise, I'm a Dutch uncle. He was a clever man. He was intellectually and philosophically interesting, but politically and socially, he was inept beyond words. Because by the end of his reign, he had led to a semi-civil war and a splitting of the kingdoms. And having been there recently, some of the thinking that goes on in modern Israeli thinking is all still linked back to some of that stuff. In the south, you've got two tribes, Judah, based around Jerusalem in the north, where we were thinking about with open the book, in the northern ten tribes, you are uh, dealing with a very significant and a very pe- a people who felt they were very unjustly treated, and arguably they were. The splitting caused major problems spiritually. The South, by and large, stayed more religiously conservative and true to the covenant. The North drifted incredibly quickly. By the time we get through to Omri, and then beyond Omri to his son, Ahab, we're in real trouble. Ahab was a weak man. He chose a dominant princess from the nearby Syrophoenician empire, what is today modern Lebanon, Jezebel. Jezebel was a wicked, wicked woman. Powerful, no problem with women being powerful. Dominant, no problem with people being, women being dominant. People, women and men, but we're talking about Jezebel, who use their sexuality manipulatively make God sick. And if you look in the New Testament, you'll see that imagery of Jezebel goes in. And she corrupted Ahab, and she brought in Baal worship. Baal's gone. Figment of their imagination, an idol. Animistic tribes worship nature. Saw some of nature in the last few days. We've had a guest, and we took her out onto the long mind. Nature's beautiful. It says something about God. It's damaged, like your nature and my nature's damaged. It's not a full representation. The only way you can really understand God is in God's self-revelation in Jesus. So there's the background. His family. In this decadent reign of Ahab, Mr. and Mrs., and we don't know what their name were, were to have a little boy. Well, they didn't know it was going to be a little boy till he was born. But he was born. And they called him Elijah. Which tells you so much. In Hebrew, El simply means God. Yah seems means Jehovah, Yahweh. So here, right at the beginning of this young man's life, Elijah, his parents are declaring faith, not in that non-existent dead idol, but in the living God, who sadly so many people seem to have departed. They'd been seduced into Baal worship, sacred prostitution, 
was one of the chief characteristics of Baal worship. It sounded very attractive to nature worshippers. Elijah. I wonder where he learned his faith. Scripture doesn't tell us. Just suddenly launches into Elijah from Tishbe and Gilead, its frontiers country, on the edge of what are today the, uh, the heights that lead into Damascus uh, and into Syria. Doesn't tell us anything about how he learned his faith. I hope as you look back to your family, whether it's a natural family or a spiritual family, you've got many people you can thank God for who taught you about God, his character, his nature, his reliability. As I was preparing, I was remembering, going back 60 years, hearing my Sunday school teacher, a young man, talking about me And it wasn't that I was unduly troublesome. I guess I was boisterous. At least that's my story. (laughs) And he was saying to me, uh, saying to this other teacher, what are we going to do with John Farron? But you see, his name was Len Williamson. At this distance, I can still remember what he taught me in Sunday school. And he, amongst many others, I thank God for a a really strong Christian family. God broke into our family dramatically when I was just 18 months old, all curly blonde hair and blue eyes through the death of my sister. Another story on another occasion. But what about you? Who was it? Was it at your mother or your father's knee? Or was it a fellow Christian? Or who was it that introduced you to faith in God. I hope you still say thank God for them because none of us would be here unless someone had spoken into our lives. And I know very well that it's about the way we live. And Francis of Assisi had it right, didn't he? Everywhere I go, I preach the gospel. If necessary, I use words. So our lives have to match our words. So Elijah... We don't know how. You can think about that as I have been for weeks. His family gave him a rootedness in God and his reliability. His faith. And I'm going to point out to you three things about his faith that I think are equally true today. Now, I'm aware that we're expounding the Old Testament, and there's a New Testament which is the full expression of God's revelation. But faith was real then. Pistis, trust. That act of believing. You look at what he tells us about his faith. Three things. Not every sermon has three points, but this one does. This part of it, anyone. This is what he says. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there'll be neither dew nor rain in the next few days, Except that God's word didn't say that. He says, my word. Three characteristics of Elijah's faith. First of all, he knew that God was alive. 
Baal is dead. Really dead. Non-existent. A figment of human creativity. Almost demonic creativity. But God is alive. And Yahweh was a God who acted. So his faith was, first of all, in a God who was alive. That makes prayer come to, to make sense, doesn't it? What's the point of praying to a dead thing? Praying to a living thing who can, as we shall see in a moment, speak. is a totally different thing. So first of all, God is alive, not like Baal. Secondly, and there are two strands to this, which I find fascinating. He talks about the fact of, not only is God alive, but it's the God who is alive whom I serve. Or if you've got a different translation, and the Hebrew, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I know no Hebrew at all. Uh, but the Hebrew scholars tell me that it can equally be translated before whom I stand. So there are two aspects of this one point. First of all, this God who is alive, I'm serving him. In other words, that's the word of personal commitment. And faith that doesn't actually function in terms of personal commitment is not faith. Right? Faith that doesn't function in terms of personal commitment is not faith. Just thinking. So here was Elijah who was saying he was committed to this God who was alive. But then he says also, and again it's a slight twist of the Hebrew, it's this person who I serve who, before whom I stand. And it's got that idea of authority. Now listen, I travel the world, as most of you here know, and when I'm talking to pastors and church leaders particularly, but it applies to all of you, because you're all leaders in some capacity, because you know what a leader is, don't you? Someone who someone else follows, right? It's not a status thing. Leadership is not a status thing. It's a functional thing. So here's the point that he was aware of serving this God and he had this God's authority. Now, I'll tell you this from years in pastorate and from ministry to leaders, and I've struggled with this one myself. Knowing that you speak on behalf of someone who has authority gives you authority. Jesus told us that. The problem is, I've seen too many examples of this, not to repeat it here, is that some people think that the authority they have because they're a servant of God somehow becomes connected with them. And what you hear is human arrogance. That is actually a very profound thing. I'm saying, not because I'm saying it, but because that's actually in the Word of God. So you can speak with authority, exousia in the New Testament. Don't fall into the trap of thinking you're the big answer to everything. You are not. You serve the person who is the big answer to everything. And you do have authority because you speak in his name, and only because you speak in his name. Thirdly, about his faith. He knew that God kept his word. You'll have to take my word for this and follow it through if you don't believe me. He talks about the fact that rain's not going to come. 
And that seems completely out of... Where does that come in the story? And you have to go back into the Old Testament to understand why suddenly, out of the blue, Elijah suddenly makes this um, human pontification, except that he was inspired by God, and God was telling him to say it. Well, he knew his Old Testament, see. He knew that God... Go back to Leviticus 26. I mean, not now, but later. And you'll find Leviticus 26 makes it quite clear. Yahweh, El-Yah, Yahweh is the God who sends rain. He's the one who has the power. He's the one who has the thunder. He's the one who has the lightning, which we missed, didn't we? I wanted it to, to be lightning. Silly little boy I am. Lots of other places had it. But that's who God is. That's who God is. And that's the God who has promised to send rain. So somewhere, God had whispered into Elijah's ear. Not only a reminder of the fact that he was the God who sent rain, but he had whispered into Elijah's heart, into his spirit, that he was going to withhold the rain because they were under his judgment. And it was a judgment that was meant to lead to repentance. Though sadly it didn't. His family, his faith, God lives, I serve him, I have his authority, God keeps his word. Leviticus 26. His food. Dave, I thought, and the whole team did great with that open the book. I wondered what on earth you were going to do with the passage. When we wake up in the morning, there's a radio by our bed, and it's tuned to Classic FM. And we listen to Classic FM before we have breakfast and have prayer time before we go downstairs after we're showered. Sometimes Rachel is incredibly insistent that I take the radio and retune it to Radio 5 because the football's on. And being a good husband, of course, I do what I'm told. Now, that's the deliberate lie in the sermon. You meant to spot that. Uh, but you choose what you listen to. You choose what you listen to. And you have to tune in to hear it. There are myriads of voices in the ether. Now, you're just listening to one. If we had a radio, I could tune in. So you tune in and you choose. And your choices tell you something about who you are. Last Sunday, I rang Emily first and she told me that she'd changed with Simon in terms of music. And I rang Simon because I wanted these days of Elijah. Uh, well, I think anybody could have guessed that might have been sung today, yes? So I rang Simon. And someone answered the phone. That's not Simon. This is all going on inside my head. All the cogs, are, you know, you can hear the clack going on inside with all this sort of 
arthritic cogs going around in my head. That's not Simon. Alan Muscat. Now, I've no idea why Alan was at Simon's. They're probably just having been guests or something, were they? For the day? It's a secret. Oh, I, I've created a problem. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> I said, Alan. I couldn't see him. But I recognized the voice. Now, here's the question. And I'd like you each to write an essay and put it on my desk for next Sunday. <laughs> How do you recognize the voice of Jesus? <clears throat> How do you recognize the voice of Jesus? Fascinating what Graham did last Sunday, talking about the Word of God because he was explaining very simply and very clearly, the word is the imagery that used Logos in the New Testament about Jesus. So was this Jesus, the one who appeared on Mount Tabor at the Transfiguration in the New Testament? Anyway, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. I'm fascinated as a theologian, because the word came actually is a very similar word to incarnated. Not that he heard the word, but the word came. I mustn't digress. But it's a fascinating thing. You may just want to think about that. The word came to Elijah. So Elijah recognized God's voice. Again, I ask the question, do you recognize, do I recognize God's voice? when it comes and of course the corollary is a very simple one do you obey it Jesus said my sheep hear my voice and they obey because they know that it's the voice of a shepherd so Elijah hears the word of God and he goes off to Cherith I've never stood at where they supposedly think Cherith is. We passed it on a bus on a couple of occasions. Last time I travelled a different route, so I wasn't near it. But I know it's in, it's in what we call Transjordan, uh, towards the um, highlands that separate where all the battle is going on now for, on the borders of Israel between ISIL and the Israeli forces. And here and there in Cherith, he was sent. He was sent to be protected because Ahab was out to get him. Wicked King Ahab was out to get him. You can't kill an idea by killing a person. I mustn't get onto that theme in terms of what we're doing politically, in terms of what's going on in society. I'm talking about the Muslim issues. You cannot kill an idea with a bullet. Another occasion. Elijah hears God, goes to Cherith. God provides for him. And here's another interesting thing for you to think about. 
God sometimes seems to break his own rules when he looks after us in remarkable ways. Because you do, you may know that ravens were unclean animals. Did you know that? So Elijah was being fed by unclean animals. Do you remember what Tim Blackburn said when he was talking about Peter having that revelation? Don't call anything unclean that I've created. So he was fed by the ravens, wonderfully fed. And I'm just going to have two little rants. Uh, Our esteemed senior church leaders both have been known to rant, so I'm going to have a little rant about two things. One, the simplicity of Elijah's provision didn't cause him to grumble. Right? Bread and meat doesn't even tell us the meat was cooked, does it? Don't think that's a problem for God, but when you see as much poverty as I have seen through my life, if there's one thing that makes me crinkle, my back crinkle, is to hear people complaining about food. Sorry, very personal agenda. But when you see poverty, as I constantly say, and we'll see it in January when Dave Ball and I go to India, you'll never ever grumble again about food. Provision, forgive the rant, it's me, it's not in the scripture, but well, I think I can sustain that scripturally. Provision, protection. Please, here's my second rant. Again, when you travel, but in this country too, please, God's provision and protection does not equate with prosperity. When you go into the third world and you see the damage that an unhealthy, extreme, imbalanced teaching about prosperity doctrine brings, both in terms of health and wealth, you will understand some of the sensitivity that I feel. Now, don't misunderstand me. God wants to prosper us. Sometimes he may prosper us by putting us in unbelievably complicated and painful situations. And if you don't believe that, you go and read the life of Paul, for example. So his family, his faith, his food, and I have got time for the last, which is, in some ways the part that's most on my heart. And I didn't know how I would get round to this. I'm cherry-picking because I'm passing over the experience of Zarephath. I'm cherry-picking because I'm uh, passing over the experience of when he meets up with Obadiah because God's told him to go and face the issue three years have passed, to go and face the issue with Ahab, and they go and meet on the top of Mount Carmel where just a few months ago I was standing, or at least at the foot of Mount Carmel. Uh, I have been on Mount Carmel. And there's this incredible contest, and you know the story, and if you don't know the story, you go and read it in chapter 18. And God vindicates himself, and the people seem to respond to the challenge, don't vacillate, don't waver, don't dither. And God justifies himself and all that he's been doing. He justifies his servant. And all the people turn back to vital faith in God. No. That's exactly what did not happen. And the point I want, and I'm going to take the final few moments elaborating, 
is about frailty. Because this man who was so significant that Jesus wanted him on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses, and he had his flaws too, this frailty of Elijah is fascinating. Stuff I do a lot with pastors when I'm abroad because it just touches the spot where many of them have been and I certainly can personally identify with this. The fire comes down. God is vindicated. Elijah prays, looks to the sea, sees the clouds beginning to form and that strong wind off the adiabatic wind coming straight off the Mediterranean, blowing right up the Vale of Jezreel as far as the Sea of Galilee and right over the Shephelah, engulfing the land in rain after a drought of three and a half years. And Elijah says to Ahab, having killed the prophets of Baal, I've skirted that one quickly. Get on your bike. Well, he didn't say that, but that was the essence of it. Get in your chariot and get ahead down from what is modern-day Haifa, right down the, jail, the Vale of Jezreel, which I've just recently been in. It's, of course, it's in my mind, isn't it? I'm sorry. To Jezreel, the capital. And he tells us something very remarkable. He tells us that Elijah picked up the cloak that he was uh, obviously clothed in and ran ahead of the chariot all the way from Haifa to Jezreel. Now, to my computation, that is 32 miles. Alan, 32 miles. That must have taken him three and a half, four hours. The Spirit of God was on him doesn't give us the time in the scripture. The Spirit of God was on him and he ran ahead of Ahab to Jezreel. And then you wish the story just told the story of unparalleled revival. And it doesn't. It doesn't. Because Ahab kept vacillating. And in the power vacuum that was there inside that marriage and inside that dynasty, Jezebel acts. And she threatens Elijah. Only a woman? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And that could equally be said about men, but it was Shakespeare who said it about women. Your problem is with him, not me. And she threatens to kill him. And Elijah only simply had to say, on your bike, I'm in God's hands. You cannot touch me. And this man of faith who's seen God provide and protect, prosper him, seen him, God do miracles through his life and through his ministry, does what we've all done. He turns and runs, absolutely scared, frightened, trying to protect his life. I've written in my notes, there was rain, R-A-I-N, but no rain, R-E-I-G-N. 
Yahweh should have been put back on the throne where he truly ought to have been, but he wasn't. And I want to say, as I finish, there were three reasons why Elijah did that. And if I may be so bold, and I've been here myself, and I am pretty sure you will have been here yourself, you've run away from something. I don't know what it is. I hope it's not a major thing. It may be a minor thing, but you've run away. You were scared. You were threatened by something or someone. Three things that were true of Elijah at that time. And God ministered to all of them in the chapter that follows, and I haven't time to expound it this morning. It's a perfect psychotherapeutic answer to how you deal with reactive depression. But you must read that for yourself. That's another piece of your homework. He was physically exhausted. Please be careful when you're very, very physically exhausted. I don't know if you know anything about physical exhaustion. When I finish preaching and go back, I shall probably sleep for three hours this afternoon. Graham was saying to me in a conversation we had privately relatively recently how exhausted he is when he's finished preaching. And we haven't run 26 miles, Graham. That's just sheer adrenaline. But this man had run 26 miles. I would imagine he didn't do that routinely. I don't think, Alan, he'd been in training for the marathon. I think this was the Spirit of God on him. But it left him exhausted. Be careful when you're exhausted. Secondly, and again, I think if you read the text carefully, you'll see this. He was frustrated. Why didn't you do it my way, God? And you've never, ever done that, have you? You have, and so have I. You may not have shouted, may have been hidden in your heart, but you've told God how to organize his universe. He, funnily enough, doesn't take an awful lot of notice of you or me, of which in my best moments I'm thoroughly glad. In my worst moments, I try and explain who I am. And he still takes no notice. He was frustrated. Listen, I will tell you this, as it's not being unduly prophetic. There will be lots and lots and lots of things that happen in life that will leave you frustrated. And you will doubt whether God is on his throne, whether he has you in his eye, whether he is caring for you, or whether somehow he's the king who not remembers your name, but has forgotten your name and even forgotten who you are. And that is the lie that Satan will inject into your mind and into your heart, and you will wrestle with that. And don't you think that leaders don't struggle with that one too? They do. And remember, I'm saying all of us are leaders in different ways. But finally, he runs. And I point out to you the utterly obvious. 
this was the one, the only one occasion in his life when the word of God didn't come to him. Every other occasion, the word of the Lord said, go to Cherith. The word of the Lord said, go to Zarephath. The word of the Lord said, go and confront Ahab. And the word of the Lord said, absolutely nothing. And he did what human nature does. He took the responsibility into his own hands. And he made a hell of a mess. And I mean the word literally. He went into the most incredible reactive depression. He lost all sense of the reality of God. Had to get angels to cook for him. God knew he needed food. God knew he needed rest. Let's not be too hard on him. He was, the, he was a classic loner. He'd been in a most exposed position. Can feel deeply sympathetic. But it's the one occasion when he didn't wait for God. Now, I've walked with the Lord since I was 15. And I'm 72 years old. And I've made some mistakes. Not quite as dramatic as that. Thank God for your family. Those that led you to Christ or pointed you in his direction. Thank God if you've got faith, because that's a gift from God. You don't get faith because you're a rather special one. You get faith because God has gifted you with it. And it's faith in a God that's alive. And it's a God that you serve. And it's a God who will keep his promise. God will provide you food. He will protect you. He will provide for you. But listen, you're a frail human being. And if one may speak to others as a frail human being, please be aware. Don't ever make key decisions when you're physically exhausted unless you absolutely have to. So dangerous. Don't ever act until God has told you. And we have the benefit of the body of Christ. We have wisdom around us. He didn't. And he acted. It wasn't the end. God knows how to deal with people who are failures. And you can go and read that as a little bit more of homework. Simon. 